when I got the audition, it said series regular, but it said something like nine out of 13. It was like some number out of the episodes that I was going to be in. And I'm like, wait, series regular, but only appears in a certain number of episodes. So I was like, well, that's weird. Oh. And then I went into the audition and Julie was like, so you can kind of guess that this character maybe doesn't end up survive. She's like, "Mm, it is the Punisher. So, you know, a lot of people going to die. And I was like, oh, I see. Fade in. Exterior construction site. Day. We see a man dressed in all black with a black face mask lying in wait for a heavily armed police officer to show himself. As the man in black hears the officer approach, he quickly emerges from his hiding spot and shoots the officer in the head. It was the sound of those shots that brought Homeland Security agent Sam Stein directly to the location of the man he's been searching for. Sam, with his muscular physique, extremely handsome features and chiseled facial hair, draws his gun and points it at the man in black. Trap it! He yells. I said trap it! The man in black obediently drops his weapon. Hands behind your head, on your knees! Sam heroically shouts, completely in control of the situation. The man in black complies. Move an inch, asshole, and I will gladly shoot you in the goddamn face! Sam slowly moves in front of the man in black and dramatically rips off his mask. To Sam's complete surprise, the face belongs to none other than Billy Russo! Before Sam has time to react to this discovery, Billy pulls out a knife and repeatedly stabs the unsuspecting Sam in the gut, the leg, and finally, the neck. As Sam, gurgling blood, looks at his killer, confronting him, Billy finishes him off with a slash to the throat and one final line. Who's pretty now? And that's how I died. Well, you know, not me personally. That was actually my character, the character I played, Agent Sam Stein, in the television series The Punisher. Yeah. So as I lay in that pool of fake blood, acting as if my life was leaving my body, I started to think about all the other characters who have died on screen. And then it occurred to me, wait, I should host a podcast where I talk to other actors and creators about how they brought life and then ultimately death to these iconic roles. Yes, I know I lumped mine into iconic, but, you know, let's just move on. I mean, our favorite characters never really die. They live on in the hearts and minds of fans for generations to come. I'm Michael Nathanson, and this is Playing Dead. Now, this season, we're going to explore iconic deaths from some of your favorite shows and movies. And everything from Stranger Things to Aliens, Halloween, Star Wars, just to name a few. We'll talk to David Desmalchian, that's right, that's how you say his name, okay, get it right, about Suicide Squad and his own brush with death. And we even talked to some former child actors who had to perform some pretty dramatic death scenes for a kid. Now, it's only fitting that our first episode should be about some of the deaths in The Punisher. Allow me to introduce you to none other than, drumroll please, Ben Bonds, the impossibly handsome Englishman who is known for his work in Westworld, uh, Chronicles of Narnia, well, and most importantly, as Billy Russo, a.k.a. Jigsaw, spoiler alert, but hey, the show came out a few years ago, in The Punisher. 
Now, later in the show, I'll be sitting down with the utterly charming Australian actor Daniel Weber, who plays Jesse Evans currently in Billy the Kid, Vince Neil in The Dirt, and Lee Harvey Oswald in 112263. Man, that guy's got some range. But to me, well, he's best known as tortured army vet Lewis Wilson in The Punisher. And to round off the episode, my good buddy and all-around dreamboat, man, I have a lot of man crushes, don't I? Jason Moore, who plays Jack in the Netflix series First Kill, and, of course, one-legged Curtis Hoyle on The Punisher. Now, to kick things off, I thought it best to maybe go into a little therapy session with my own killer. Well, I mean, Agent Sam Stein's killer. Yeah, I'm talking about the man himself, one and only Ben Barnes, on location in Budapest shooting Shadow and Bone Season 2. Ben, hi. Hi, pal. Are you in Hungary? Where are you? I am. I'm in Budapest in Hungary. Thanks for killing me, by the way. Thanks again, all these years later. I would lo- I, It was an absolute pleasure. I know. I'm sure it was. We're very sad about it. What's very sad about it? I just think we could start this off the right way with honesty and truth. And I remember when we did the read-through for the episode where you were going to be killed, you looked like a puppy that had been kicked. (laughs) Do you remember, though, what I did in that read-through? That nobody else knew that I was going to die. Maybe you knew I was going to die. I don't remember. But pretty much nobody else knew I was going to die. Everyone was reading that last page where it's like, you know, Billy stabs him and blah, blah, blah and stuff. And do you remember I stood up and I went, what the fuck? (laughs) You did. I do remember that. And I remember thinking... Why is he being so dramatic? He already knew because I already knew because I had been working with the stunts department for a week or so um, to try and find a cool way to do it. Because I feel like once you have it in your mind that your fate is is sealed, I, I think at least for me, when I found out that I'm for the chop in various movies or TV shows, the one thing that you want is to is to go out with some kind of memorable moment some kind of bang some kind of you know water cooler moment that you'll at least be remembered yeah i i think we achieved that so you knew because you were practicing all your stabbing all your delightful stabbing moves i will say you were very sweet and gentle on the day what i remember very distinctly is how apologetic you were you were continuously apologetic like while we were filming it i'm very british we do like to say sorry a lot well you're very british it's true but you were so sweet and i felt I felt bad that you felt bad, but I was like, no, this is great. And like, this is exciting and I'm fine with it. I just remember you kept saying to me, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I have to do this. I felt like it had fallen to me to be the one who was sort of responsible for your demise, even though obviously I had not been the one to uh, to write it. And obviously I, I got to experience almost exactly what you felt like. Um, in season two, you mean? Uh, in, the, in the second season where I only found out over halfway through shooting the season that I was also for the, uh, for the chop. So, um, so I, 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 yeah. and I thought about you a lot at that moment uh, as well. John Bernthal, who played the Punisher, was obviously was actually very much the same, I think, as I had been with you on the day of my death. He he gave a sort of lo- it was one of the final days I think that I shot too. So he he gave this sort of lovely um, little speech to the crew about I don't know what the point of carrying on doing this is if we're just going to kill you off like this, um, which which was very really a sweet kind of moment. I remember it being very important to me to define what those last few words would would be because you feel like you've gone on this 
journey, people might have been able to watch it, you know, over the course of a few days, but you've put in sort of years of effort into this, into these, these characters. And you really do start to, uh, you, you know, start to feel this affinity for them, even if they're murderous psychopaths. You know, you want somebody to be on their side and you're the only one charged with that. I don't know if you felt that when, like when you did find out you were, you were going out, you're like, right, I want this to be a great moment. The thing I wanted the most out of anything was to have a memorable death and to say like, okay, if I'm going to die in this thing, which is like a dream of mine to be in one of these sort of iconic comic book style things, because as a kid, mm. this is just what I love and I still love all this shit. But like I, I, I said to myself, as long as that death, you know, feels special that I'm that I'm cool with it to set the scene one more time Sam Stein who I played who was this homeland security badass or at least he became one in the beginning he was a big schlubby donut eating you thought he was one and that's what's important thank you so much man <laughs> um it's like the closest I'll ever get to being a badass on film potentially so I have to like relish in the fact that you're very badass <laughs> I remember there was a sort of sequence that the marines were calling the five of nine with all these different places that you could stab someone to kill them and you do them in a certain order. And I have a video of me sort of training doing that where it was even many, many more stabs than we ended up doing. But I think in the end it was, uh, it was, it was the one in that like you say, the artery in the neck, which I thought was, I thought that was the best way to do that. And I remember you coming to the stunt room for us to train that so that we could make sure it was, really violent because I think that was the way you want to remember it but also compared to all the other superhero shows that was what we kind of had over those other shows was 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 a was the leeway to be more graphic in, in terms of the violence. First of all, they rigged me, you know, they rigged me with like a hose in me with blood, but that was when I was actually laying down, like after you left me and you sort of like dropped me like a rag doll. If you say, what's, what's your line that you say to me? Something about me being, you say, who's, who's, come on, just say it. Who's pretty now? Yes, who's pretty now? It, it was obviously a moment because I've had friends, but also just people in the streets in the year following that first season coming out, people kind of saying, who's who's pretty now? They gave you a nice sort of like Arnold Schwarzenegger, hasta la vista line. Yeah. I remember we had to shoot that. It was really cold. It was in the back of that studio space. Yeah, 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 it was in, in Greenpoint in Brooklyn. And then I remember... I was wearing like a wetsuit underneath my clothes because once you drop me, they were just going to pump blood through this wetsuit. And like you had said in the back of your neck where you were like seeping blood, they were just going to seep blood out of my entire body and I was going to be left in this giant pool of blood. The thing I remember the most though is when when you were fake stabbing me because you didn't actually have anything you were stabbing with, you were just doing the moves. No, there was. There was a spring back knife that was functional. Really? Yeah, but like, like one Am of those, I remembering this wrong? Like one of those ones you have when you're a kid. You could see it flick behind my head, and it was like rigged so that when I stabbed you, it would just go back into my arm. I had kind of a gridded look on my face where I was like, "Yeah, you're killing me, but I'm gonna be pissed off about it." And then I think I spit blood in your face, and I then I apologized, and you said, "Oh, that's fine." And concrete. Is that the only time you've been killed in, in on television? Yes, it's the only time I've been killed since Chicago Man. This is like being broken up with in a really dreadful way. It's very often works out that your death scene is the last thing that you film. I don't know if you found that, but it, it, I I have found it. It's very often one of the final things you film. Although I have done movies where I've been killed about halfway through the shooting schedule, which is always very strange. I got shot by Harvey Keitel through a desk, but because of his availability, we had to do it about halfway through. And then I thought, well, okay, now I have to go back and be alive again. 
and, and alive with talk. Harvey Keitel and like appreciate the fact that he's not killing you or just like ignore the fact. No, no, no. He was gone. That was the last thing he did. Oh, I see. What was that? It was a film called By the Gun, which is a small sort of Boston gangster film, which I, I think about seven people saw. But it was very mem- memorable because when he rapped for the final time um, on the final scene, he sort of turned to the crew and he just went, see you all in hell and walked, turned off and walked out. <laughs> And everyone just looked utterly bewildered, but it was kind of an amazing. He was playing a sort of gangster, a sort of you know the the a gangster boss. Um, so I just thought that was a very boss move. <laughs> you know those those little dream things you want to do as an actor, and I got to do so many of them in The Punisher, like walk away in slow motion from an explosion, things like that. Um, but I remember when I got shot by Harvey Cartel that they did that thing where they put a blood. Um, sort of bag underneath your back and then you lie down on it so that it slowly seeps out Ugh. when you as you're dead and trying to keep your eyes open the blood slowly seeps out across the floor and you're just trying not to blink and i was like oh, i want to do one of those deaths where you don't blink you know? oh absolutely oh it'd be so much fun to do every type of classic movie death like uh falling from a building like hans gruber in die hard or or um or getting stabbed in a sword fight like count rugen in princess bride but um as it does come for us all, death came for Billy Russo at the end of Punisher season two. When it came to my death, it, it sort of happened in two stages because I had the the revenge for your death, which was Madani shooting me. Uh, and then we both tried to choke each other out simultaneously and we were both just coughing and spitting blood all over each other, which was really quite disgusting. And then we both passed out at the same time and then when she recovers, I have disappeared and I've gone to find a doctor. I think she's dead. And then eventually, almost a full episode later, Frank kind of finds me bleeding and pathetic on the floor. Fade in. Interior. Basement of St. John's Evangelical Lutheran Church. Night. Billy Russo, age 41, bloodied and almost on the verge of passing out, lowers his phone after calling and begging Curtis Hoyle to be with him as he dies. In the distance, we hear a door close. Kurt, Billy croaks. Curtis, here, I knew you'd come and... Billy stops mid-sentence as he notices the large figure at the door. Frankie? Billy asks, confused. Frank Castle, a.k.a. The Punisher, also bloodied, walks slowly towards Billy. Billy starts to laugh maniacally, then stops as he coughs up blood. (laughs) Of course it's you. I should have known. Frank says nothing. If I'm going to be with someone, I'm happy that it's you. Frank stares intensely at Billy. Frank, whatever I've done, I'm... Without letting Billy finish, Frank pulls out his gun and shoots Billy two times in the chest. As Billy's body slumps down to the floor, Frank holsters his gun and slowly walks back and exits through the door he entered from. When Frank's about to kill you uh, at the end of season two of Punisher, did you have a thought in your head of what you would have said to him? I'd written a sort of slightly longer version of what it would have been, but I still wanted it to be cut off halfway through. And the, in the original version of the scene, I didn't say anything at all. Frank walked in and just immediately shot me. And I begged um, our showrunner to let me say a little something. And he kind of fought me quite hard on it. Um, 
until we sort of found this compromise, which, because I, I said the important thing for me was I wanted to have a secret. I wanted to have this lost in translation moment at the end where Bill Murray whispers in Scarlett Johansson's ear of, of, of uh, something that you don't know, but you know it's intimate. And, I, and so I think there's going to be something, it sort of almost didn't matter what it was going to be, I realised when I was chatting with him about it, because I just wanted it to be something that would have felt redemptive, would have felt apologetic, would have felt like a man who in his last breaths wanted to say he was sorry for the pain that he caused him. But it is just too late they wanted to tell him what he meant to him. And I'd written out a bunch of different sort of more poetic ways of saying those things, but I thought it was very important that he didn't get to say it. I thought that was, that was actually very smart. But it was along the lines of, you know, my idea was to have something that was tantamount to an apology. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry for killing your children, your wife, ruining your life, your career, making you into a fugitive, etc. How much... There's really no apology that fits that. Any emotional stability you ever had. But, you know, I made him famous in a way, yeah. so you're welcome. Yeah, that is true. When I found out halfway through the season that I was going to die, I was very sad because I really enjoyed playing the character. I was really enjoying where it was going in terms of this sort of, like, you know, frustrated, vaguely psychotic confusion. You know, there were so many opportunities to make him different things, to have moments of tenderness and moments of just abject fury and, and having a character like that who's so unpredictable is kind of the, the the dream often so the idea that I wouldn't get to do any more of that was yeah that was that I think when you when you die in a film you know it's coming you know it's happening you know you've read the whole script and 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 it, so you can almost sort of look forward to that being an exciting day but in a tv show you know it, when you're away shooting a tv show it kind of becomes your life to quote uh, Oscar Wilde from the picture of Dorian Gray a, a mo another movie in which I uh, meet my and uh, some, some things are more precious because they don't last. I think that's true of, you know, playing a character like this. And I think that's what's so special about these, these connections that we make in these roles that we play, because they are necessarily finite in terms of our experience of them, but also people's experience of watching them. I'm always very sad when a TV show that I'm really enjoying, when I get to the last episode, I, I sometimes wait before I watch the last episode because I don't want it to finish. And I think the experience of doing it can sometimes be a lot like that, but heightened. So you were in the HBO show Westworld, and what's interesting about your death in that series is they kill your character Logan off screen with an implied drug overdose. So let me just set the scene for everyone who haven't seen Westworld. It's a futuristic sort of Wild West fantasy park and, and guests can come in and interact and even kill or abuse what are essentially androids um, who look and feel exactly like humans. Now, of course, the androids eventually gain consciousness and all hell breaks loose like any good sci-fi story, but your character, Logan Delos, is a human who is a very dark character and he just loves killing these human-like androids and abusing them. I've never had more fun than I did with this sort of gun-toting, you know, crotch scratching you know uh hat toting character everyone else was concerning themselves with ideological questions and sort of just trying to figure out the meaning of life and what what does it really mean to be a conscious living being and wrestling with all these things and i was just trying to work out how to be the naughtiest i could possibly be um so that was the most fun logan operated at a completely base level like, at least Billy Russo had some, like, method to his madness. Logan was just, like, unhinged in that world. Yeah, I think he was just having a good time the way he knew how. But I remember that the showrunners, Jonah Nolan, had sat me down 
the day before I started filming. So I was cast very late and just said, right, he is pure id. He is, you know, he's led stomach and groin. There is no filter. There is no ego in this man. It's pure id. And I remember going home and looking up what id meant and then uh, <laughs> coming back in the next day and, and sort of thinking, right, I got it. You definitely got it. You were so good in that show. Okay, folks, time out. I'm going to temporarily take off my host hat. Ah, there we go. Sorry, it's pretty heavy. And now we're going to go into a segment I'm calling Let's Google This Shit! In all honesty, I wasn't 100% sure what having id meant. And uh, just in case you were wondering the same, I thought maybe I would just turn to the interweb for a little guidance. Okay, so here we go. Uh, According to good old Sigmund Freud, the human personality has three components consisting of the id, the ego, and the superego. Now, the id is the part of the mind that contains all the urges and impulses, notably sex and aggression. So, yeah, I'd say Logan was definitely pure id. Okay, school's over. Let's bring it back full circle to The Punisher. Did you get a little send-off when you died? Did they give you a little cake? They gave me a little cake with a bunch of knives and brains in it? We continued that tradition. We did. I, I, I also got a death cake on that day. Yeah, that was amazing. I do want to end this by asking you, do you have a favorite death in the history of cinema or television? In the history of any cinema? That's a, that's a big old question. I mean, anything. No, no super pressure yet. Well, I think about it. What is yours? Oh, God. I have so many deaths. The TV death that hurt me the most was in The Wire, when Omar got shot at the end of The Wire. Yeah, okay, Williams. Bless his heart. He was brilliant. Yeah, he was wonderful. He lived right next door to me. He lived in the building next door to me in Brooklyn. I used to see him all the time. Most amazing actor. I always used to see him, and I wanted to go up to him. I revered him so hard. But that death, when... What a powerful death, right? He manages to escape the cops, the, the criminals, all the people that are after him and killed by another kid wanting, you know, as a wannabe sort of criminal in that neighborhood, just showing how the endless cycle of violence in some of these neighborhoods. That was, a, that was an intense death for me. I'm going to give you an actor who I think arguably, uh, uh, one of my absolute heroes, one of my favorite actors of all time, but I can think of two deaths of his which are jumping into my mind. Mm. which in Harry Potter and also in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, which is the late, great Alan Rickman, who I think is so moving when he dies, obviously a Snape after performing that, like we said, like in this very intimate way after a decade of films that you have invested in him in one way. And then you realize the wool has been pulled over your eyes, unless you've read the books, which obviously everyone in the world has. And you get no time with him at all on screen to really appreciate who he actually was. And then he is, uh, you know, killed by that by the, by the snake, and they're collecting the tears, which are very beautiful. But one of the greatest on-screen deaths of all time, so hammy, takes fifteen minutes, is in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, where he's clattering about into bits of castle and sputtering and spewing and groaning and moaning. And it is so over the top and so brilliant. So I'm going to give it to that death because that's great. So the great Ben Barnes of many, many things, um, the man who murdered me, it's not every day you get to confront the person who murdered you. And I've done it and I've survived my next one-on-one confrontation with Ben. It's the first step to a full and healthy recovery. Thank you, Ben. Thank you for all your help with this. Three, two, one. Go for Australia. All right, folks, please welcome to the Playing Dead stage. It's Daniel Weber, who played the tortured army vet Lewis Wilson in The Punisher. Daniel Weber is a uh, very handsome man. 
because he's got long blonde hair these days. When I knew this guy, he had short hair and he was a fresh face, innocent, and he had yet to be in Motley Crue or with Billy the Kid or whatever the fuck he's doing now. <laughs> in, he, the guy's like a time traveling actor uh, personality, but say hi to everybody, Dan. G'day, guys. Why did you say g'day? Can you just explain that real quick? I'm sitting sitting in my friend's apartment in the western part of Sydney. Just for really dumb people, that's in Australia, right? The east coast of Australia. Great, great. Yeah, <laughs> Daniel, you probably have seen him in many, many things. I know Daniel from The Punisher, where he had to fake an American accent, which he did quite well. Dan played Lewis, a very sad character on The Punisher who was a new character on The Punisher uh, based on nobody. Tell us a little bit about Lewis from uh, season one of Punisher. So, yeah, it, he, he's a very, very, very sad character. Basically, what the story is, uh, Lewis Wilson has gone over to Afghanistan. He served over there and he's come back very disillusioned, very damaged. Um, and in some ways, he's, he's based off somebody like Timothy McVeigh, who came back as well, disillusioned um, and, and couldn't find essentially work. He was a star, you know, poster boy for the army uh, going in and came out and couldn't, couldn't get a security guard job. And that was the basis for which uh, Steve Lightfoot, our showrunner, uh, sort of developed the character from. It was pretty intense. It was a really intense, as far as anything I've ever done. I loved playing it, weirdly, but it was the most intense period of time. It was almost, it was like a guy who, who, who was like just paper thin. He had nothing left. He couldn't, couldn't hold. It, it was just, he was just sitting there waiting to just melt down. And what was amazing, you know, it's, it's a Marvel show and, and Marvel doesn't, I don't think usually go this deep, but we were, we were in the room on, on our first day with men who, you know, everybody had served outside of myself, Jason, and I think one other actor. And we're all swapping war stories with these guys who have gone over and served and, you know, given life and limb. People, you know, the guy sitting next to me had no arm. I mean, it was, it's very real when you're trying to talk about war stories and tell war stories in a, you know, a, a VA setting to guys who literally lived these really, you know, traumatic experiences. And so from day one, that like, I didn't know how deep they would go with it, but, but day one really was a good eye opener of like, oh no, we're, I th we're, we're trying to honor the soldiers and the vets uh, in, in a powerful way. And, and I think that, that really also comes from John Berthold who plays the Punisher, because he, he, he really salutes the men of service and he, he did in, in uh, Daredevil in a really, and you can see it in just the, the way he's acting. Like he's not, he hasn't phoned it in from nowhere. The, the man's done the research. He's, he's spent time talking to, to vets. And um, so, yeah, we came, we came in at a very deep place. And then getting back to the storyline is uh, essentially Curtis is trying to rehabilitate and reassimilate Lewis back into civilian life. And ultimately he gets radicalized by some, you know, disgruntled, uh, guys and gets, gets in, involved in politics and, and, and far, far right politics. And there's sort of Timothy McVeigh gun groups and, uh, and ends up very disenchanted when he's betrayed by this person that is maybe the one person he really actually thinks he trusts. And then, does you know gets involved in domestic terrorism, uh, and we we end up you know having a fight with John Bernthal's character at the end, and and, and Lewis, spoiler alert, blows himself up. 
Fade in. Royal Hospitality Hotel. Kitchen. 10.22 a.m. Lewis Wilson, age 25, has a bomb strapped to his chest and several cuts across his forehead and nose. His lips are pursed, and he is breathing heavily. He is embracing his hostage, Karen Page, with his left arm. His right arm is extended, holding the detonator. A bloodied Frank Castle, a.k.a. the Punisher, stands in front of Lewis, desperately trying to talk the young war veteran out of blowing them all to smithereens. With subtle guidance from Frank, Karen swiftly rips the white wire from the detonator, disabling the device. She quickly reaches into her purse, pulls out a gun, and shoots Lewis in the foot. With nowhere else to go, Lewis runs into a giant kitchen freezer, barricading himself. As Frank pounds on the freezer door window, we see Lewis weeping. Gathering himself, Lewis slowly recites Rudyard Kipling's poem, The Young British Soldier, as he reinserts the white wire into the detonator. That's it, kid. You can do it. Frank whispers encouragingly as Lewis slowly begins to squeeze the trigger to the reactivated bomb. Like a soldier, go. Go. Go like a soldier. He takes a deep breath and squeezes the trigger. The freezer explodes, killing Lewis instantly. I'm really glad that I I died when I died. And at the same time, I I wish I'd kept going. But it it was such an intense six months of shooting. You know, sort of, I was sort of- Yeah, how could you, every season to have to like go through that process. Lewis doesn't know he's gonna die. Sam Stein doesn't know he's gonna die you know you're gonna die. So you gotta prepare yourself and you wanna do it well, right? And you wanna be memorable. How did you think about that day? Like the night before and then the day of, and then like in preparation for like, or did or did you try not to think about it until like the moment of? I remember running around a lot. It was almost like get uh, sort of working on breath exercises, I guess. Cause by the time he dies, he's, he, he's gone through hell and uh, probably is having proper panic attacks about the situation he's just found himself in. And so I was running up and down the hallways before takes. John, John was joining me at different stages and we would sprint up and down just to get that really wild energy. It's a wild scene. For that scene specifically, I kind of wanted to, if I could capture somebody who is so, so lost. He's quite insane at that point. I'm trying to tap into that. I didn't really know how. Uh, so it was sort of just throwing it to the wall on the day and seeing, seeing what stuck. I remember it was such an intense day. Uh, I mean, I was having to drag Karen around in this bomb vest is stabbing in the back. And so there was that, this element uh, for her trying to, trying to not be rough, like me trying not to hurt her basically. Uh, yeah. and also she, she didn't want to be thrown around like a puppet and fair enough to, so trying to figure that out. What was amazing on the day that John brought to it was, uh, this wasn't scripted when I grab her and, and, uh, just before I go into the, the freezer, John's talking to me about becoming a terrorist and the, the consequences to my, myself, my family and everybody else, um, that I'm hurting other people. Do I really want to go through with this sort of thing? 
Uh, and, and the beautiful thing that they worked out, because it wasn't scripted, was while this monologue's going on from John trying to convince me to not do this, he is talking to Karen and telling her essentially in subtle nods and side comments uh, how to remove the wire from the detonator. So when I do eventually go to click the detonator, it's not working and mm -hmm. he can come in and save the day. And it was this really nicely orchestrated moment that they figured out between them, just trying to, cause, cause otherwise she's just a, she's just sitting in the scene doing nothing. And they found a really great way to make her active. Cause not only that, like, does she pull the wire out, but she shoots Lewis in the foot with her gun, which she has in her handbag. Um, right. So that, that was really cool. So you went from playing a fictional character who died to playing a very real person who is surprisingly still alive after all the crazy shit he's done. You got to portray Vince Neil, wow, in the Netflix movie The Dirt, which is all about the notorious heavy metal band Motley Crue. Can you just tell me a little bit about like getting that part? I had one of the best auditions I've ever had with anybody, not because I was good, but because Barbara Fiorentino, who was casting that project, she really, really, for some bizarre reason, thought I could play Vince Neil uh, and worked with me. We're, I mean, it was one of those ones I was in the room for, from memory, like 40, 45 minutes. And she was like, no, no, it's good, but do it again. Do this, try this. Yep, you need to do that more, do this more. I'd love to bring you in with the producers and the director. So I, I went in with the, the producers. She told me, you know, you need to try and commit a little bit more to your producer session. I didn't get dressed up too much as Vince Neil. So, you know, Friday comes around and I'm meeting six different producers and the director. So I've got eyeliner and my hair's coiffed and wearing a, a, a revealing singlet. It just, something about that audition, it just, it just sunk up with me. I think I understood his sort of crazy, like abandoned. I mean, I, I was pretty crazy as a as an 18 year old. So I, I definitely understand that. Maybe not to the same extent, thank God, but a version of it. I was like, the only way I'm gonna get this job is if I treat this small little audience in this small little room like it is a bloody stadium. It was good fun. But we talked a lot about The Punisher, uh, you know, in the in the pre-audition pre sort of conversation. Oh, that's cool. There was a real buzz about the show. Do you know who you're competing against? Jared Leto was gonna play my character. Because there's been so many versions of this. Um, so Jared Leto is one. I know Ashton Kutcher was involved, but I don't think he was going for Vince. Sam Rockwell was in a version years ago. Uh, Sam Rockwell? I mean, look, Sam Rockwell can do no wrong in my eyes, but that's a weird That's a weird choice. Isn't it? Yeah, Jared Leto would have been Vince. Sam Rockwell, I believe, was Nikki Six. This job's been around for 10 plus years. You know, different studios would buy it and then they couldn't make it. And then eventually uh, Netflix, who's I think then and still is just trying to do some really daring content, risky content that, you know, will push the boundaries a bit. From what I understand is it all happened pretty quick by the time we got to Netflix hmm. and Jeff Tremaine came on board and pitched it. He, he, was, a, he was a perfect director for us. He not only shot the their last sort of world tour that they'd done the motley crew him and uh his producer Eric colson but uh he, he's from the jackass world so he understands boys who are 
out of their minds and doing all kinds of shenanigans. So he understands that on a, a deep level because he's an agent of chaos who loves to instigate these moments of absolute lunacy. But he understood the depth of that that journey because the the jackass guys kind of went through that, you know, fast rise to fame, the the drugs, the sex, the collapse, the deaths, like they went through this whole gamut as well. It's basically like getting thrown into the world's biggest party for three months straight. With a month of boot camp sort of becoming the crew down there. In, we were shooting in New Orleans, uh, which is a town you can just disappear into a, a black hole in. Great food, great bars. We, yeah. we were out every, pretty, pretty much every day. I remember Jeff had a goal, and this is why we were shooting. He had a goal of making sure he, he stayed at our bar, our local bar called The Saints, that he would stay there till about 2 a.m. for seven days straight. While we were shooting, if you went home before three or four a.m., you got absolutely shit on by the guys for being soft, just nuts. I mean, it's just running around town like drunken loons. Did the guys from Motley Crue come down and hang out with you guys at all? It was nerve-wracking. It, it definitely nerve-wracking, and I remember being very like terrified. And uh, and where we set ourselves up as the band, and then they came in said hi and then sat down in front of us like th two meters from our face while we we're doing shout at the devil and live wire uh you know with these bad fake wigs that would flick off halfway through the <laughs> halfway through it they were pretty excited i think they were tripped out by seeing themselves I remember tommy lee after this just i came outside he was sitting in the gutter just staring at his feet with this sort of lost look in his eyes it must be a lot to see your your yourself kind of come to life to a, to an extent, uh, and, and and your songs and the way you are acted out in front of you. It really spun them out. Um, but then we got treated to like a five minute drum solo as well. Tommy's just sitting there, we're all chatting away, and then Tommy just sits down, and just goes crazy on the drums, and and did an incredible solo while we were just sitting in the room, taking it in. I mean, it's just I don't know, it's very bizarre. It's some of those, some, some sort of like pinch yourself moments. It's really something when you get to share those sort of moments. I think what was really good casting uh, from Jeff Tremaine was getting MGK, Machine Gun Kelly on board because you've got all of us, you know, nice squeaky clean actors coming in to play these rock stars. And then they brought in Machine Gun Kelly. I love the guy, but he's a madman. He's a, he's a true madman, and but he's a rock star, an actual rock star. And he really... I mean, I think he injected the whole shoot with a different quality that it wouldn't have had without him on board. I, I just couldn't even imagine trying to like prepare for a role like that. Like I don't. Well, and you know, the, the, the irony of it all was, ah, man, I was so terrified of the, the, of singing and, and doing a good job that I had, like I had in my three months of prep, I hadn't touched alcohol. I wasn't drinking coffee. I was doing everything possible to get my voice in a good place. And then as soon as we get down there, I think it was the first night we were down there, Jeff, our director, takes us out for, you know, to a pirate bar, which only serves absence shots. I was like, that's, that was our very first night and our sort of introduction to, 
I was like, well, there goes all the non alcohol. Uh, but then your voice was going to have that growl and the snarl yeah. and all the other stuff that had to be underneath it. I'm sure Vince Neil, like, and the, correct me if I'm wrong, he didn't, like, train his voice or take voice lessons, right? That's just his voice. The one story I, I found about how he would, like, warm up was he would just get in front of the mirror, swig a bottle of Jack Daniels uh, whiskey, and then scream, fuck yeah, at the top of his lungs in front of the mirror until he hit a certain pitch or, or, you know, note. And then he was like, all right, game on. And they would, then, they, and then they would always do this tradition of, what was it called? Five bubbles, something like that, where they would take five huge swigs from the bottle of whiskey and then go out uh, and, and do their performance. When they were young, they, were, they rehearsed so, so much. They would do their whole hour set, you know, all the way through. And then they would do it all the way back. Uh, in, in reverse order. So they're doing like a two hour set in, in preparation and they just had this like manic renegade sort of energy when they came on stage. And alcohol helps your voice. And I, and I say that not as a recommendation. Inhibition helps your voice. I just think I would have been shitting my pants. So I would have been drinking. Can you just tell me some other deaths you've had? Cause I know you've had others. I didn't see the movie you did with Harry Potter and I know his name is Daniel Radcliffe, but I, he's Harry Potter. Um, Poor guy. He's never, never getting away from it. Listen, listen, I read my kids, Harry Potter every single night. We're on book five right now. I do every voice. My kids yell at me when I don't do the correct voice. Mm. Essentially what I'm doing is I'm emulating the voices from the movies. So like, I feel like <laughs> Harry's is the voice. Hello, Hermione. My, uh, I wish I was getting tucked into bed and you were reading me a nighttime story all of a sudden. Oh, uh, Dan, any anytime, <laughs> sweetie. And then I have to do Hermione. It's very knowable. Yes, yes. And uh, and then there's Sagrin. Hello, Harry. How are you? <laughs> it goes on and on. I do remember my mum reading uh, Harry Potter back when we were kids, and uh, she wouldn't do the voices. And I'm a little bit, yeah, a little bit upset with her all of a sudden. Can you give a Daniel Radcliffe impersonation? <laughs> oh my god, I haven't seen Harry Potter in so long. Uh, well, I can say I, it's hard to not look at him and not see Harry Potter. Yeah, that's why. Well, I just want to know what that was like on set, like when you first met him. Escape from Donna Mora? No, no, Pretoria. Uh, Pretoria? Yeah. I made a bad Harry Potter joke to Dan on set, I, which I regret still. And <laughs> Dan, if you're out there, I didn't mean it. I'm really sorry. But we, at one point, our characters to hide from the guard, hide under the staircase in the cupboard the cupboard under the staircase, which <laughs> everybody in Harry Potter. As we know, that's where he lives uh, in the Dursley's house. Yeah. And so I'm stuck in this tiny cramped little cupboard. We're sort of sitting on, on each other, the three of us. And I was like, ah, oh, you thought you would get out of the cupboard, Harry, but you never got out or something stupid. <laughs> he just gave me the dirtiest, dirtiest look. And uh, he was like, he's like, I'm in a fucking apartheid prison escape movie. Do you understand I'm trying to get away from this goddamn fucking character, you piece of shit? Which I think that was his inner monologue in the dirty look. Oh, no, 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 that was 100%. I think you were actually bang on, bang on there. So I'm sorry, Dan, I didn't mean it. I love you. You asked before yeah. what other shows I died in. I died my first show. I played Lee Harvey Oswald and and uh, had the honor of being murdered by James Yes, Franco. in the Hulu. It was called 112263. Well done, man. Nobody remembers that name. If you're making a movie, don't have numerals in the title. Uh, I'm just glad I was able to redeem myself after butchering Escape from Pretoria. Whew. So for those of you who haven't 
yet watched the miniseries 112263, which you should, because it's awesome, um, it's based on the Stephen King novel in which an English teacher, played by James Franco, travels back into the 1960s with the intention of stopping the assassination of JFK. It was so, so bizarre and eerie. It might be the, like the closest representation to what happened. Like we had the exact detail of, of the motorcade coming through or about as exact as you can. Uh, and I, I wasn't in the book depository. I was on the top of it. So I think one floor up or two floors up from where, where Oswald was. Oh, they wouldn't let you shoot in the actual book depository floor because that's like a museum now. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so they recreated that room and, uh, and I sat there and lined up the sites on on the motorcade and it it's oh my god God, it was what was weird was how long you have to watch this motorcade come through and then then realizing how long he had to watch it before he actually took the shot did you guys take like when you were talking about that the assassination were you taking the opinion that lee harvey oswald was like the assassin or there was more to it i kind of came to the conclusion that i I do you know whether or not somebody else might have uh, been involved as far as talking about it to him, maybe, but I, I came to the conclusion that he was a man very, very capable of having done what he did. Do you have a favorite death, Dan Weber, in the history of movies and TV? And is there like a death that like really affected you? Was there like a character that you loved and that you were like, fuck, what? Oh, Why? Man. That's a great question. How did you not come prepared with the answer? I didn't even think question? about that question. Damn. Uh, well, Braveheart's pretty... Pretty good. You know, the most emotional, maybe most emotional one that, that really hit me when it happened? Well, there's a couple, but Gladiator is up there with, with uh, yeah. Russell Crowe. Sure. That's a lump in the throat yeah. sort of moment. And then the one that really just knocked me out. These aren't like great deaths. These are more emotional. These ones like just hit me. It was uh, the mother in What's Eating Gilbert Grape. Oh, yeah. Wow. When she died... I was a complete mess for some reason. I don't know what it was. And she was so overweight that they had to burn the house with her in it because they couldn't get it out the door. It was just something about that was just so, so sad. I actually want to go back to just Braveheart because that is probably one of the coolest deaths. Like it is such a badass death. He ends up dying screaming freedom. And it, it's it's such a great, yeah. you know, open-throated yell of like, freedom! It's so powerful and amazing. So I'm going to, that's going to be my one. I like that. On that note, Dan Weber from Australia in the future, <laughs> 17 hours ahead of me in Los Angeles. You look good, man. It's good to see you. It's been a while. I'm proud of you and all your amazing accomplishments and all these, I see you all over the fucking place and it's well-deserved because you're a gentleman and a scholar and i love it thanks you. very much great to see you brother be well huh thanks for doing this all right yeah thanks man good luck with everything stay safe on that set of billy the kid just keep your guns loaded and your fucking horse well fed and well rested some great deaths to come guys great deaths to come my next guest is jason moore whose character curtis hoyle didn't perish in the punisher but who kills every role he takes a stab at which is why everyone's dying to work with him Oh my god, I'm sorry. Uh, dad jokes. I might have made a grave mistake adding too many into the intro. <laughs> okay. But look, hey, even survivors get a chance to make their peace on this show. And certainly that guy, Curtis Hoyle, survived many a scrape in that series. Now, Jason is head-to-toe in swag here. He's wearing a First Kill t-shirt, which is Jason's recent vampire Netflix show. I mean, that's why I love him, and it's all about the swag. Of course I wear my swag. It's, it's yeah. like, I don't know. Swag t-shirts are so comfortable. 
I don't know what they're making them out of, but you know, I toured with the Lion King, and I had a I have a Lion King jacket. Mm. Like I still have it. It's like three sizes too big because it was the only size available, but it has my name on it. All right, so here we are. This is a real special treat for me. Um, I am sitting across from an old friend, an old compatriot, an old cast member, buddy from season one of The Punisher. We have on this wonderful, beautiful, sunny day here in L.A., in the studio, Mr. Jason Moore, who played Curtis Hoyle in The Punisher season one and season two. How you doing, guys? I'm good. We're good. I, I want to know about how you came to Punisher, how you got the role. Were you a Marvel fan? Were you like a fan of that particular comic or other comics? Like when I was a kid, I wasn't too big in comics, but they were around. They were around the house. They were colorful. So I, I think they were some of the things I've right, I reached for as a kid on like a newsstand or something. Did you have siblings who were into comics? Yeah, well, there was five of us running around the house, and so my older brother definitely brought some comics in when we were little. Like, what's what's crazy is I don't know how the comics got there all the time, but there were comics in the house, right? I didn't necessarily appreciate what I was reading. I, like, I loved the Hulk as a kid. I loved Voltron and, and Thundercats, and these are all, like, the kid cartoon shows at the time. As I got a little older, I was introduced to, like, Punisher and X-Men and Wolverine and some of those other characters that are so popular today. I wasn't like a geek about it. I always thought they were cool. I remember also thinking that these are just smaller newspapers. And so I would just discard the comic book like I would discard a newspaper. I think living was a little too hard for uh, to be worried about comic books at the time. But anyway, as I got older, uh, I don't know when my tolerance for violence came about. Um, I just like reality. And it was a point where the fake stuff wasn't rocking anymore. But when I read like some of these Punisher comments, like, yo, the brutality was like, I don't know. I thought it was dope. I'm not a violent person by no means, but, you know, it's a, it's entertaining to see if it's done like right. It's just... But also done for a reason. Like if someone has a justification, not not that there is ever a justification necessarily for violence. Like I don't want to see this burning cats or anything like that. No, yeah. no, no. I'm talking about if there's like a war, right? Like a movie is about war. People are getting shot. Like I want to, you know, I want all the evil and bad things that happen in war. I want to see it. Like if the movie's about it. And so when Daredevil came out, sort of seeing the, I don't know. It's like it was speaking to me as a, a now adult. The TV show. The TV show on Netflix. Was Daredevil like, was the first Marvel Netflix show. Like like the old classic, I don't know, Batman and Robin, like that back in the days. I couldn't watch that shit. Not goofy, even as a kid. Goofy, yeah. It was goofy stuff. Yeah. And then when, uh, let's see, Blade, right, came out, I was like, yes. I love Blade. I was like, yes, all right. And then... The Dark Knight. It got darker and darker. It got darker and, and darker. realer and realer. And realer and realer. I was like, well, what's driving this character to do what he does? Like, I want to see, that person has to be crazy. That person has to step over that line of in to insanity. Like, I got to see that. Um, and so it's not the Bruce Wayne that I, I'm concerned about. The Bruce Wayne is almost the persona, right? Bruce Wayne is the the mask almost, I want to see the dark side of all these characters, right? Daredevil made it as real as it has ever been at the time for me. I got the call to audition for Daredevil. Well, all of them. Daredevil, 
Jessica Jones. This is pre-Curtis Hoyle audition. This is pre-Curtis Oh, Hoyle. I didn't know this. Okay. Uh, uh, but when you got called in for Daredevil, did you know it was Daredevil? Mm -mm. What did they call it? Because they, they all had, all those shows remember. had like, those yeah. funny names. Our show was called Crime. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. They didn't want everyone to announce that it was a Punisher, right. even though everybody, like once it was released on the internet, some one person yeah. figured it out and then they kept calling it Crime. Did they tell you it was Daredevil? No, no, I didn't know it was Daredevil. Oh, so you, you were like, this is just some procedural yeah, yeah. show I, I'm going on. I didn't for. know it was Daredevil until way after. I didn't know any. But it's, I started to catch on. When the auditions came around, there's like these weird titles, and then they were like sides from other shows. I was like, this is one of the Marvel projects. <laughs> I was like, yeah. this is Marvel trying to get around. And so um, when Punisher came around, I didn't know, but I suspected because it just followed the pattern. It was a weight off of my shoulders. And I'll tell you what that is. It's like when you're you're out there auditioning, you don't know when your break is going to come, right? Uh, rejection after rejection after rejection. Yeah. Screen test, still don't get the film or, or, or show. And I'm talking about years of this. And then the one time it happens, in the most impossible way ever, like you audition. Like I think that's the hardest because everybody's trying to funnel to that, that front door. And that's what the audition process is like. And then you get it. You get it, right? Yeah. That relief was was so, this is going to sound weird, but that relief was so exhausting that I could not get out of bed for like almost a week. It was crazy. Because I was like, I did it. Um, I, I, I got one. Big one. It was like something that, in the way they presented it, you get the call from uh, Jeff Loeb, and he's like, he's like, um, uh, the next three words that I'm going to say is going to change your life forever. Like, they hyped this up. He did the same thing to me. Jeff Loeb made that phone call, and he was like, welcome, welcome to, to Marvel. Marvel. Yeah, uh, we did it, yeah. He's exactly what he said to me. We're we're talking about the higher-ups at Marvel. When that red phone rings, it's uh, it's pretty special. So tell me a little bit more about the process of training for Punisher. The first season, um, you know, I was going into it like, yo, I'm about to be Clint Eastwood. I'm about to go into, like, Charles Bronson. Like, I thought I was going to have a bunch of gun <laughs> battles and things like that. Nah, I didn't have it that way. Because it was like, yo, you're going to be working with John Bernthal. You know, he's a punisher. You're pretty much going to be like his sidekick. I was like, yo, okay, I'm going out there guns blazing. Didn't happen that way. That first season, I was kind of out of the the combat loop. I had like the one fight scene that we had to work out. Um, but th that whole process was dope. You know, you go into this little, the, the, the studio that was at the production office and... They have the scene kind of worked out with boxes, which was pretty dope. Yeah, like, you yeah, you remember that? And the pads and stuff like that. And the gun, the guns that we trained with, they weren't workable guns, but they had like sight, they had like um, laser sights. Like I didn't work things. with guns. Oh, you never even like. I didn't work with guns first season. Oh. I didn't work. You know, it was all hand combat. Right? Okay, because I did that too. But then they gave us these guns to train with that didn't. They, they weren't working guns, but they had like laser sights, mm -hmm. and they had things set up that would like knock little like things down, so you could like target practice oh shit. I didn't it was even, fun dude of course that is like yeah. like it was so fun i was like yeah this is the best job on the planet i'm actually doing a show that i want to see it was like a goal reach boom box check um so going through the combat scenes and coming up with like better moves because they would they'll come with the previs previs is like a um, pre-made video of like the fight sequence with the stunt doubles and we were able to like alter and make different changes so it was like a more of a collaborative effort it was dope it was fun it's like the you get the it's a kid playing in the sandbox i promise you that totally. like, and the stunt folks love to like collaborate with you and they want to know what feels comfortable for you they want you to get into your character they want you to feel like 
it, it's organic and it comes from yeah. you and they're and they're there to help. Yeah, it's amazing. It's a really cool collaboration. They're, they were amazing that yeah, stunt yeah. team. And it's like it's like yo, you get a project like this too. You're like, I don't need no stunt double. Right. I do my own stunts. <laughs> yeah, it's not gonna happen when these people spend this much money on you. Yeah. They're not gonna let you do all yeah. that stuff. You crazy? So you you think yeah. you're gonna go out there and do that shit? Nah, B. Yeah, <laughs> they're gonna, yeah, yeah. They're gonna have the stunt doubles in there doing almost all the like serious fun stuff. Fast forward to um fighting with uh Daniel Weber. Process was dope. Um, again, we got to play in the kids in sandboxes, and and then again another one of Steve's. Uh, sort of sadistic jokes. It's like, yo, I, you know, we're going to have you get beat by your own leg. Fade in. Interior. O'Connor's apartment. Day. After knocking down the apartment door, Curtis Hoyle finds the decomposing body of right-wing conspiracy theorist O'Connor and evidence of a bomb being made. Taking in the gruesome scene, Curtis hears heavy breathing behind him. He turns around to see the clearly unhinged Lewis Wilson. You shouldn't be here, Curtis, Lewis says, his voice breaking. Curtis gestures towards O'Connor. There was a dead guy in that chair. Seems like he's been there for a while. None of that matters now. Lewis looks at his feet, unable to meet Curtis's gaze. I can't leave here without you, buddy. You know that, right? Lewis sighs. He looks up at Curtis and pulls out a gun. Right. You can't leave here. Curtis lunges at Lewis, grabbing at the gun and knocking it to the floor. The two men commence throwing punches at each other, but the larger Curtis has the upper hand. He throws Lewis to the floor. Just stay down, Lewis! But Lewis has other ideas. He kicks at Curtis's prosthetic leg, throwing him off balance. After a few more punches, Curtis throws Lewis across the room. Assuming he has a few moments, Curtis looks down to make sure his leg is correctly attached. Taking advantage of the situation, however, Lewis chucks a pot at Curtis's head, then body slams him to the ground. Hell-bent on winning this fight, Lewis violently pulls off Curtis's prosthetic leg and furiously beats him with it. As he is being repeatedly struck with his own leg, Curtis Hoyle loses consciousness. Some of the scenes that would come through were so over the top in, in a great way. Like, you know, I've got at one point I'm pu I pull off Curtis's prosthetic leg, and beat him with it. And, you know, then I'm stabbing a, a, you know, a quote unquote friend to death. I was like, there's no coming back from, from hitting a man in his face with his own prosthetic leg. There's no coming back from that. You're just an asshole now. I'm like, I'm like legit twice the size of Daniel Weber. Yeah. Jason's a big guy. In real life. Daniel's a little guy. And I was always A little, like, but short. I was like. Shorter. Yeah. I was like, he's in shape. He's just, no, he's, total, he's totally. totally in shape. But it's like size alone, right? Would, would win this fight. And so I was, that was like the only pushback I had. You, you watched me in the show and like there's, there's muscles popping out of every shirt that I have on, right? I was like, yo, you have to show that this, this character is capable. I know he's handicapped, but you got to show that he's capable. And so we worked in a moment where, um, which wasn't there before, where um, I kind of like, because I don't want to fight him, but then I just kind of like get mad and I throw him into the, uh, that wasn't there before. And I was, I, I kind of got my way on that one. I was like, yo, I have to, this has to be something there. And I have to, like, not want to fight the guy. Like, it has to be clear that I do not want to fight while he takes advantage of me. 
all the uh, action in that scene was, you know, they, they brought the stunt double in. Stunt double was crashed into the table and stuff like that. It was cool to do. It's fun. It's what if if is all was, was what I decided to be an actor it was all about. This was it. It's like I got here. I I love the fun action stuff. Um, you know, I've always wanted to use my body in things. I think movement was always a great tool to, in back in acting school. I always seen the benefits of being able to move your body in a graceful way. And I just wanted to kind of show that and put that on display. So the first day on set for you was, was it the scene um, where you're talking to the group? And everybody was there. And that, that pressure, talk about pressure. You know, it's like all that I was looking forward to, boom, it's here. You go into the space and you got all the other actors there who are vets, by the way, like real vets. Some of them had missing arms. Legs were missing, so these were the real deal. They're featured extras. They were like featured extras, right? But they got real, the real deal. So, but they got the feel, real yeah. deal. Has any like was anyone come up to you, like especially someone maybe who's been to war, like a veteran? You ever had a oh, conversation, so seen your performance, and been like, "Listen, this really helped me," or "This yeah, really." I, I would be remiss me. not to mention this, but um, the the amount of challenge coins that I've gotten from soldiers, um, people who served, um, is I, I I lost count. I just got like a draw full of challenge coins. And it's it's Curtis Hoyle spoke to them. That character, that corpsman, who was the most beloved unit in like a, a troop or something like that, the corpsman is like the good guy. The corpsman helps everyone else before himself, right? And so everyone loves corpsman. And, dude, they would come with such touching stories. And they would always tell me, like, it still happens on Instagram. Like, like they, they'll send me messages like, what you did with Curtis Hoyle was like, like touching. I felt it. Um, and so I knew I did something right. Those were the people, the people who served, the people who were really suffering. I never served. I'm, I'm not suffering from any uh, sort of PTSD like that. So it's like um, for me to take a character, these guys lived it, and then say, yo, you did it. It's, it's great. It's, it's, it's sort of like this validation um, that, that I approached the character, right? I took it serious enough, and, and I was able to speak to a group of people who really needed that speaking to because some people were like, yo, dude, his words is what I needed. Like, hearing those words is what I needed for me to keep going. And there's all these sorts of stories, man. Like, um, one guy, he was like a, uh, uh, like, he was like a high up dude um, in, on one of these military bases. He came to a convention and the guy um, invited me to the military base to do helicopter flyovers, to do all these sorts of things. He's like, you could train with uh, the SEALs like for a day, spend to see what it's like to be a SEAL. He offered all this to me just for the fact that he felt the character. Like, that's a big thing. Like, like I had no idea it was going to have that reach, but I, I got really aware when I started working on the project, um, uh, when I seen those people... Uh, in the circle with missing limbs and stuff like that, and some people who stuttered because they just they they just like that now, and so um, that appreciation that was shown for for the work uh, that I did for Curtis Hoyle was was definitely um, it's there and it's it's touching to see it, uh, and I, I mean I'm happy for it. I feel so satisfied with that work because those people have reached out that kind of way, and I kept in touch with several of several of them. So. Uh- that's, I got nothing else, man, because that's the end of the day as an actor. If you can have that moment in your career 
whether it's on stage, whether it's in a Marvel movie, TV show, Disney, some basement somewhere, some independent film you make. But like if you you make an impact on one person like that, you feel like that there's a reason you're doing this. It makes sense. I definitely want to touch people. I definitely want to inspire people. And I hope my work does that. And this was, again, like validation. This was it. I was like, yo, I, I did it. I have, This is what I wanted to happen. And it actually happened. It's a good feeling. It's a very good feeling. What are you doing right now? Oh, First, First Kill. Kill. Yeah, which is on Netflix. Well, nice. Tell us about First Kill. It's a vampire show, right? I play a vampire hunter. I play a, the father of a family of vampire hunters. And there's these legacy, a family of legacy vampires that we go up against. Who's the creator, showrunner? Who are the folks behind it? Felicia Henderson. Oh, amazing. Who was the writer yeah. in Punisher. Yes, of course. And Felicia, fun fact, was actually the one responsible for writing my death scene. I play this sort of real by the book vampire hunter who's trying to raise his family and prepare them for the, the world that's out there. And so, of course, kids want to be kids and do what they want to do. And so we buck heads because they're not always doing the right thing. And I'm always trying to keep them on track. Aubin Wise, who's in Hamilton, uh, she plays my wife in the show. Um, she's like the loving mother. And I'm like the loving father, but with order. Right. Some stuff happened in, in the in the story where we really go head to head. Like you would think that we're probably going to split or something like that. The, the real story follows the young character who's in high school and she meets the legacy vampire's daughter and then they start a relationship. And then now it's like, yeah, we got to stop that shit from happening. Got it. Got it. Well, Jason Moore, a.k.a. Curtis Hoyle. AKA My good buddy Soil. from season one. It was great to catch up, man. It's been a while. Thanks for having me, man. It was man. a pleasure. All right, Jason Moore. Thank you, buddy. And so, friends, we gather here today to mourn the loss of three fictional characters. Agent Sam Stein, whose application to the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. is still pending, but will always be remembered for his biting wit and no-bullshit approach to life, which he considered his ultimate superpower. Billy Russo, AKA Jigsaw, who once said, the only crime in a war is to lose. Poor Billy not only lost his good looks, but his charmed life as well. And Lewis Wilson, a United States Army veteran whose superb bomb-making skills could have made him a leader in the explosive engineering field. He would have had a blast. <clears throat> Sorry. Join me next week, where we've got some pretty scary deaths to talk about. And so we got to the point where on the set, Wes would come up and he'd be like, I'm so sorry, but today. And so like I had to stand in a body bag of eels covered in sticky, freezing blood. How many eels were in there? Oh, so many. And they were like slithering around. Oh my God, it was so awful. Now we'd love to hear from you. Get your feedback, and hey, if you like what you're listening to, we'd love a review or a rating. And remember, if you don't like our standards, lower yours. And if you have a favorite on-screen death, hey, we'd love to hear about it. Message us at Lionsgate Sound across Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and you never know, we might feature it on the show. Playing Dead is hosted by Michael Nathanson. Hey, that's me! Produced by Charlie Webster. Written and produced by Jill Marie Hoffman. Edited by Aaron Florence. Executive producers Charlie Webster and yours truly, Michael Nathanson. Special thanks to Kyle Epler and Stephen Sletton. Produced by Lionsgate Sound and Magic Scope. 
Lionsgate Sound, engineered by Pilgrim Media Group.